Welcome to Facets. This new limited podcast series created by KHOL and STEO features stories told by original voices of the mountain life. Educators, athletes, entrepreneurs, laborers, scientists, and ski bums drawn to live in the mountains shed light on the many aspects of humans living close to nature. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. In this episode, KHOL's Emily Cohen talks with some of the pioneering women in Jackson Hole who are pushing boundaries on and off the slopes. Walking into the ski patrol cabin at the top of the 10,000-foot rendezvous peak at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, Melissa Mom was welcomed in like a legend. Mom was the first woman on the ski patrol here in 1978. And though she retired just a few years ago, she still skis here nearly every day. Today is my first time back at the resort in three years since tearing my ACL. But I know I couldn't be in better hands. Tucked away in a quiet office, we chat about how life on this famed mountain has changed since Mom first came here as a college student. Really different, you know, longer skis, um, less wide, skied in old wool navy pants from Orville's secondhand store and wool mittens, you know, I mean, it was just a completely different culture. Besides the advancement of gear, of course, the mountain has changed in many other ways. There are now nearly four times as many ski patrollers as there were in the 1970s and a few hundred thousand more skiers. You know, a lot of the, the guys on the ski patrol at that point, I think there were maybe 25 um, men, and uh, a lot of them did ski patrol because it was an available winter work. And, yeah, it was pretty... It was pretty raw and Western, I would say. Now, 62, Mom explains that being a woman and a mom while working for the resort gave her a different perspective than most of her colleagues. I had to obviously prove myself, but I do feel that um, women in general and what I've seen with the women who have come on the patrol now, we, we think about things differently and we approach things differently. And because we can't use brute force, Lots of times we need to be more nuanced and creative on how we accomplish things in the job. So I think that's what helped me survive is to figure out ways to, to do the brute force work without injuring myself. The Jackson Hole Ski Patrol is responsible for more than 5,000 acres of terrain and 4,100 feet of vertical drop. The job is physically demanding and dangerous. But that's on par with what this northwest corner of Wyoming is known for, at least in some respects. It's a wilderness filled with apex predators, grizzlies and wolves, and big mountains with lots of opportunities for an adrenaline rush. With this setting, it may come as no surprise that Wyoming has long attracted more men than women. It has the second highest male-to-female ratio in the country, just behind Alaska. Heather Hansman is a writer who has thought a lot about why there are more men in the mountains. Her recent book, Powder Days, explores ski town life in all its complexities. 
You know, one of the biggest problems in the ski industry in general is who's called in and who's invited in and who gets to be a part of it. Who who even considers themselves a skier in the first place and who is made to feel welcome. I thought a lot about like the history of the idea of ski bombing and kind of the media and the stories and the things that created this kind of mythological character. And that ski bomb is like a white, straight, able-bodied man. Trying to break down that stereotype is so I mean in some ways it's like on its face hard but in some ways it's just sort of like under the radar sneaky hard there's just this kind of like narrative of who's welcome and who's not and while our numbers may be fewer the women who are here are making an outsized impact and have since Wyoming was formed women in the state were the first to receive the right to vote in 1870 50 years before the rest of the United States This milestone gave Wyoming the moniker the Equality State. Wyoming also had the first female governor in the U.S. in 1925. And Jackson boasted the first all-female town council in 1920, dubbed the Petticoat Rulers. One of the members of the council was Faustine Height, who recounted her story of moving to Jackson Hole with a friend in a 1969 interview recorded by her niece. And we both wanted to see the West. We never had seen mountains. We wanted to go to the mountain country. And we got on the Union Pacific Railroad at the county seat and started west, and that was it. The train eventually made its way to Victor, Idaho, where the pair had to find a way east over the Tetons into Wyoming to get to their jobs as school teachers. There was a little sheep herder he found that he and this little sheep herder had a team and uh, he would take us over if we wanted to go that way and it's the only way there was uh, to go but despite these achievements from a hundred plus years ago today it often feels like being a woman in wyoming is talked about as if it were an accomplishment in and of itself to be frank that hasn't always resonated with me Some of the accomplishments we celebrate feel almost quaint in light of the world's challenges, particularly because our state doesn't have the best track record on so-called women's issues. For example, Wyoming scored all C's and D's on the latest report card from the Nonpartisan Institute for Women's Policy Research, which evaluates the status of women in each state based on a number of factors, including employment and earnings, political participation, and health. Out of 30 state senators, just four are currently women. And after that first all-female town council, Jackson didn't elect another woman to local office until the 1980s. Maybe because of these stats, there are a lot of Wyoming groups working to promote women's and girls' advancement. Some are focused on career training and economic empowerment, while others like the Jackson Hole Babe Force hold events and courses to empower women in outdoor recreation. One group, Momentum, works to foster leadership for women in Jackson through a mentorship program and workshops on everything from financial planning to career development. One of their recent events focused on developing a personal strategic plan. For those of you who aren't familiar with Momentum, we are a nonprofit organization that has been around for 15 years. Our mission is connecting and empowering women to lead within their communities. Our signature program. Jackson Hole, in many ways, is bucking state trends with women in leadership roles. 
There's an impressive number of us who hold prominent positions of power in the community. Women are at the helm of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, the Chamber of Commerce, and the primary philanthropic organization, the Community Foundation. The police chief is a woman, as is the fire marshal. And some 60% of the town's more than 200 nonprofits are led by women, according to the Community Foundation's tally. I'm the executive director of KHOL, the local public radio station, and the only community radio station in the state. The state NPR affiliate, Wyoming Public Radio, is also led by a woman, as is the largest newsroom in the state, the Jackson Hole News and Guide. One reason women may be more successful in Jackson than in other parts of Wyoming could be because they're likely to be more advantaged economically. Sam Eddy, the executive director of Momentum, says it may also be because it's a place that inherently attracts risk takers. So many people who live in Jackson Hole have moved from other areas all over the country to, to settle here. But there is a, a courageousness and a pioneering spirit that is required to sort of Take the leap from your familiar and what you know, a place where you may know you could be more successful to come to, you know, the quotation mark Wild West. And for women, that courageousness sort of, I think, trickles into how they engage in the community, a, a distinct initiative to get involved with the place that they live in so that they can feel supported by where they are. Living in Jackson isn't easy. It's expensive and isolated. Stable housing is a perennial concern for those who don't own, and it's winter for about nine months of the year. Maybe it's this mindset Eddie speaks about that draws an inherently different kind of person to Jackson. Or maybe it's because positions of leadership are more available here because men are choosing other fields, say guiding or construction. That's an oversimplification for sure, but it's something I've wondered a lot about. There's something that almost is required for those women who decide to stay here that has to do with an ambition, a drive, a cor courageousness that, that frankly, this whole living here kind of requires in general. You know, we live in an area where the mountains are extreme. There's extremes in temperatures. There is this whole mountaineering ski culture that's all about risk-taking. So. You know, there, there is that genuine need to be strong, be brave, and be willing to sort of make a commitment to where you want to live. As far as finding a partner to make that commitment with, there's the old adage in Jackson that the odds are good, but the goods are odd. It's something a lot of women joke and complain about. You know, there are a lot of people who have sort of called Jackson Hole Neverland and all the boys Peter Pans, right? And so if that's the case, maybe we're all Wendy's. Maybe we're all the ones who are, you know, taking care of things and you know, keeping things in order. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Sometimes I take note of, of that, you know, when I'm in a circle of women and they're talking about what adventure their mate is on right now and how they're holding the fort with their jobs and their careers and their kids. Of course, many women are seeking out adventures too. Mom, for example, came to Jackson to ski one winter while in college and never left. Tried to stay in college down in Salt Lake, but didn't last very long. I kept thinking, I'll just take a winter off and go back to school later. And um, that never really happened. <laughs> I stayed here. I stayed, yeah. And, and I don't regret it at all. 
For Catherine Cullinane, who was the first female guided Exum back in 1981, guiding was just a stop on her journey. Exum is one of the oldest and most prestigious guiding companies in the United States, focused on rock climbing, mountaineering, and backcountry skiing. Cullinane fit in naturally because she came from a line of mountaineers. I grew up in the Bay Area in California, Oakland. My father was in the 10th Mountain Division in World War II that were the mountain troops, and he was in Italy and was injured there, and he was quite young when he went, like 19. They put a pack upon your back, it almost weighs a ton. You march for miles and miles and miles, oh boy, and you got fun. For seven days a week, they build up your physique. Veterans from the 10th Mountain Division who fought in the mountains of Italy during their service were instrumental in growing the ski and mountaineering industry after they returned home. Through their efforts, the veterans helped transform skiing from an elite pastime to something where the most valuable currency was skill and nerve. Of course, in many ways, skiing and other outdoor recreation are still hobbies for the privileged, but the notion of skiing as a sport for the free-spirited adventure seeker, the carefree ski bum, still permeates the culture. This idea of the mountains as a playground for daredevils didn't intimidate Cullinane, though. Definitely a lot of men, and they would look at me because, you know, I was small, and but I could always outclimb them, you know, so... Once they saw what what I could teach them and show them and and do, that always made a difference. Cullinane spent most of her career as a nurse and diabetes educator. But the mountains and rock climbing were something that she has held fast onto. I spoke to her over Zoom when she was in southern Utah on a climbing trip. You know, I wasn't really a mountaineer, but I was a pretty good rock climber. So I started carrying loads up to the lower saddle. So I wasn't really hired as a guide, but then they got busy and I sort of apprenticed. And that was over like a couple summers. It was sort of an evolution. Women like Cullinane and Mom paved the way for others. Today, one-fifth of the Jackson Hole ski patrollers are women. Same for Exum. Still not on par, but a big step towards equality. It's a notable shift that Hansman says has accelerated considerably in the past 10 years. Like I see younger women coming up and it seems like they have such a sort of more robust cohort of friends and peers and people that they can talk to. Still, progress in one arena doesn't mean progress everywhere. Both local and state politics are still dominated by men. Jackson Mayor Haley Morton Levinson is one of the exceptions. I spoke with her in the lobby of the inn that she manages with her family. Growing up here, I never thought I would come back and run for my local town elected office. Uh, But I moved back in 2010 with my then boyfriend, now my husband, Nate. And uh, actually a family friend suggested, hey, you should look at the town council. Some of them have been on there since you were in middle school. So that planted the seed. And then when I looked at the makeup, there was one woman at the time. And she was also the only person under, I think, the age of maybe 50. And so I always go back to that. I wanted to run because I wanted to represent younger people, women, and just felt like that there was an opportunity to do that. Being both mayor and innkeeper gives her an unusual perspective. She represents locals in her mayoral hat 
and also regularly interacts with tourists that are the lifeblood and sometimes heartache of this town. She's also the mother of three young children. We met on a Wednesday afternoon during a rare moment when she could carve out some time away from both her kids and town duties. It's certainly not easy to have it all, but Morton Levinson says she still encourages more women to run for office. I hope some more women run. I'm always hopeful for that. Research shows that women tend to want to, or not to feel ready, um, and want to hit certain milestones or certain, like, you know, educational or, or whatever um, before they, m- they may feel ready to run. I say just do it. Like, I think that was one of the benefits when I was young. I didn't, I didn't think about it too much. Um, other than wanting to serve my community. I didn't worry about all the different things that would go into it. So I, I just say, just, just do it. If you, if it's something that you've had in your heart or if you're, um, just really passionate and want to serve the community in an elected office, go for it. Don't wait, don't wait 10 years when it fits the plan or don't, you know, think that you need other connections or different networking go for it and put the work in for the election and it will probably be successful. Lynette Grable took a similar approach when she ran for Congress in 2020 against incumbent representative Liz Cheney. She is Northern Arapaho and Hunkpapa Lakota and was the first Native American to run for national office in the state of Wyoming. I stand or speak before you as a full-blooded Native American woman, indigenous woman, And the statistics that hang over my head is that I am the most stalked, raped, murdered, and sexually assaulted than any other ethnicity in our country. And also the statistics say that Indigenous women suffer domestic violence 50 times higher than the national average. The campaign was a long shot in many ways. Cheney was the establishment Republican candidate in a deep red state. Grable is a Democrat, but that didn't deter her from running. The sole purpose of it was to um, run for office to get Native American issues in the forefront of conversation, especially in the realm of politics. Grable is also the founder of a nonprofit called Not Our Native Daughters, which she started in 2013 to bring more attention to violence affecting Indigenous women. Grable lives on the Wind River Reservation in central Wyoming which is shared by the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone tribes. Nine years ago, nobody knew what MMIW was. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what Missing Murdered Indigenous Women, um, th- those acronyms, nobody knew what those meant. Originally inspired by Canadian First Nations activists, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's Movement has grown steadily across the U.S. over the past decade. And while Indigenous women still face violence at much higher rates than other women, Grable says that at least now, there's an awareness of these issues, and that is some progress. You know, we're, we're seeing it being taken serious, both on a state and federal level. In 2013, the state of Wyoming didn't have a missing, murdered, indigenous person task force. They have one now. And that's because in 2019, I proposed Governor Gordon to make that task force so that we can address the issues of missing, murdered Indigenous persons, and a lot has been done since 2019. We've had a missing, murdered, and Indigenous... Grable is working at the grassroots level as well. 
She's building a women's shelter on the reservation that is set to open in a few months. Native American women suffer domestic violence 50 times higher than the national average. But out of the 574 tribes, only 58 of those tribes has a domestic violence or sexual assault shelter. So it's imperative for me and my mission and the protection of Indigenous people overall that there's a shelter here in a safe place. It's no surprise that the issues affecting women in Wyoming are quite different depending on where you are and who you are. There's no one set of challenges we face. In other words, women's quote-unquote issues include domestic violence and affordable child care. And they also are reproductive rights, economics, access, and opportunity. Grable shares advice for women inspired to work on these big, complicated issues and how to support each other along the way. I believe that leadership is, is, is cultivated. So what I would say to other women leaders who may be listening, you know, support your other women leaders or upcoming leaders. Um, be a mentor, you know, support other women who are pursuing things that are going to create change in your community and or state. Um, and also support your indigenous women um, who are working in those realms of, of leadership um, because we all need each other. When I first started reporting this piece, I didn't know where it would go. I was skeptical about why there was so much talk about women's equality, especially when the conversation felt focused on past accomplishments. But through months of listening to women from across the state, I gained a new appreciation for the complexities of these milestones and the work that still needs to be done. Being the best or the first is a feat, and it is something to be celebrated. Ultimately though, it's my hope that these stories serve as an inspiration for a more inclusive Wyoming for everyone, no matter what you want to accomplish. For KHOL and Steo, I'm Emily Cohen. This episode was made in collaboration with Steo, Stewards of the Mountain Life. This episode was reported and produced by Emily Cohen. Kyle Mackey and Will Walkie provided editorial and production support. Music scoring by Sheena and Jacob Ferguson. Creative direction and executive production provided by Steos Liz Barrett and Jesse Vanderlinden. Facets logo design by Kika McFarlane.